the hardest thing to overcome in behavior change is the strength of a pre-existing habit and how we eat, you know, three or four times a day might be the strongest habit that we have. But I think it's something that we have to tackle. Sustainable is still being used as a value proposition that comes with a green premium in terms of price. It's being used to make more money off of consumers largely as opposed to getting them to live more sustainably. And I think we need to get rid of that. Otherwise, we're just disincentivizing sustainable behavior change. Welcome to A Load of BS, a practitioner's guide to the BS galaxy with me, Daniel Ross. Every week, I suggest that this time is the topic of all topics to cover. Well, let's accept that without great argument, that sustainability, the future of our planet and ourselves, is right up there. Today, I welcome David Thompson, Vice President and Head of the Sustainability Practice at BE Works, Dave is a cognitive experimental psychologist working with large multinational corporations and governments on behavior change challenges such as electricity consumption reduction, adoption of energy efficient technology and food waste reduction, all of which we touch on in the podcast, little of which we as consumers do enough about. So we'll find out why and how with a little creative thinking this changes. Today is actually the 10th episode in my series of very practical podcasts on the life of behavioral scientists, their challenges, their work, and how they think about the future of the industry. I think, by the way, I may have muddled my series numbers at one point or other, but little matter, since of greater importance is that I'm proud to say, as always, that I'm doing all of this in harness with my partner, BE Works, one of the very best behavioral science consultancies in the world, co-founded by Dan Ariely and Nina Mazar. They are a multidisciplinary team of behavioral scientists and psychologists working on complex challenges across financial services, healthcare, sustainability, of course, helping businesses reimagine a future in which individuals flourish and prosper. And if you're interested in what they're up to at all, you might check out their Be Curious blog on their website at beworks.com or please feel free to drop Warder Malik, their CEO, a line at info at beworks.com. They'll delighted to hear from you. Now, Dave Thompson knows his subject like the back of his hand. You're going to learn a lot. Enjoy. Dave, welcome to A Load of BS, a practitioner's guide to the BS galaxy. It's really great to have you here today. Thanks, Daniel. Super happy to be here and chat about all things behavioral science and sustainability with you. Absolutely fantastic. Now let's get right into this. Sustainable living, and I guess by extension, the future and preservation of our planet, indeed of ourselves, is so obviously in any sensible top three issues of our our time list. You know, the noise gets ever louder. The dangers we face are clear, despite the naysayers. There is, I think, a growing consumer desire for products and services to be more sustainable. And certainly, big businesses are preoccupied with the topic. A bit of research I pulled out, which I thought was interesting. Kantar reported this year that while 92% of people say they want to live a more sustainable lifestyle, only 16% actively change their behavior. So in the end, friction outweighs the fuel to be sustainable. The effort to reward ratio to recycle, to eat more sustainably, or to reduce energy consumption is clearly out of whack. So before we get into the exciting projects which you've undertaken in this field, let's address this behavioral problem, which feels ever so pertinent to sustainability, how do we 
bridge this values to action gap? How do we make it easier, essentially, for people to adopt new behaviors? Yeah, well, one of the other stats that goes along with that is that consumers actually are expecting that companies will help them close that value action gap. So it's fine to say that we all want to live more sustainable lives, but most people believe that it's incumbent on the companies from which we buy all of our goods and services to make that possible and to help us to do that. But even if they do, I think this value action gap would still be quite large. And the reason for that is because we have a lot of friction, as you say, with respect to sustainable choices, but we also have psychological barriers and biases that prevent us from following through on what we want to do. So a lot of the things that we are being asked to do in the name of sustainability, they're asking us to give things up, which taps into loss aversion. They're asking us to pay green premiums. They're asking us to do small things that will only really matter if hundreds of thousands of other people do them. And so there's this sort of diffusion of responsibility or why should I do this if, if it's not going to amount to anything? So those are the underlying barriers and biases that really we need to tackle with sustainability initiatives if we want to close that SADU gap and allow those 92% of people to make good on their intentions. And I like the point you talk about responsibility, which leads me to the question, whose behavior needs to change first? Is it policymakers and companies or is it me and you home thinking about our energy bill or how we do our food shopping? Or is it a bit of both maybe? Yeah, it's definitely a bit of both. And I think most of the focus in the last 20 years or so has been on governments and corporations, sort of higher up in the value chain, setting the right policies, developing the right technologies, manufacturing and distribution processes to make goods and services more sustainable. But only really, in fact, this year, the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change in their latest report has acknowledged that it's really demand side that needs to change now if we want to offset global warming. It won't be enough to just rely on governments and corporations to change their business practices. We as consumers and citizens, we also have to change the way that we behave because if we're demanding sustainable options, sustainable products, then that's what they will give us. Yeah. The issue, of course, when you say this, is that human beings are fundamentally lazy and despite our signaling and best intentions, you know, most of us ultimately are not that committed to a sustainable lifestyle. Or perhaps maybe we could take an alternative view, which is that, do you think if I drive a Tesla, for example, while it's mainly for show, if that purchase has positive planetary effect, does it matter if this benefit is indirectly and conceived? And maybe if not, then maybe this is an analogous way in which we can think about encouraging people to contribute to sustainability. Yeah, absolutely. And and I don't know if I would say we're lazy. We I think that we cognitively our, lazy our time and our energy into many, many things. And so maybe we don't have enough left over to think about the environmental impact of every single little decision and behavior we undertake on a daily basis. But this is a contentious issue really in the, in the sustainability domain right now. Do we really need people to adopt this environmentally friendly mindset? Do we have to have a self-concept as environmentalists or eco-friendly or sustainable? Does it really matter? All we really need people to do is behave in ways that will be better for the planet and offset the massive amounts of CO2 that we're putting into the atmosphere every year. And the Tesla example is a good one. It's primarily people buy it because it's a status symbol. It's, it's a high performance machine. It signifies socioeconomic status and many other things as well. And so do we really care if people buy it for that reason, if it gets combustion engines off the road? I don't think so. And I think that 
we can pursue that same strategy with lots of other sustainable behaviors that we need people to do. I think right now we are still over-relying on the environmental value proposition. Do this because it's the right thing, because it's good for the environment, or because here's what will happen if we don't do these things. Here's what will happen to the planet. And I think that we need to tap into the human psychology of what really motivates us to do these things. And don't be shy about pulling on those levers if that's what it takes, because we really don't have that much time to change a, a global mindset. Yeah, that's absolutely right. It's about removing the barriers, make it really easy for me. It's about increasing the motivation, really make me want to do it. What are the more immediate concrete benefits that we can present for people, which is complicated when it comes to sustainability, because often the benefits are more collective rather than individual and the benefits don't come tomorrow. So that's complicated behavior change, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things we need to do in order to successfully change those behaviors is give something to people now that either solves a problem they currently have or that adds to their lives rather than pushing all the benefits down the line and saying that you may or may not see these benefits accrue, but you know, only if, if many, many other people do these things as well. So you could take, for example, something like a smart thermostat. It's a great piece of technology that can be automated and really reduce electricity consumption. But you can't get people to adopt those things for that reason. But you can get them to adopt them based on playing up to their self-concept as technology savvy or, or innovative, or just simply as a way to improve the comfort in your home. And I think that that, that can apply to many other things as well. Yeah. And it goes to the heart, I think, of what makes really good behavioral science, which is we have to think more creatively, more oblique, lateral solutions, which are not always the most obvious. And I think those are often the best ones. And I think some of the things that we're talking about are often quite straightforward, simple, not wholly expensive interventions. It's just about shifting perspective and understanding a specific context. Now, we've obviously talked about, you know, individuals have responsibility. Now, on the other side, as we sort of touch on, companies obviously are investing heavily in sustainability initiatives and campaigns to drive awareness, attempt to shift mindsets, but ultimately don't really result in any behavior change. And we sort of tend to call that corporate greenwashing. How prevalent is this? How much of it is an issue? It's a prevalent issue, and it's one that there's a lot more attention on right now. I think companies are aware of this, and I think more importantly, citizens and consumers are aware of this, sort of on the lookout for dubious claims and, and actions. And companies have to be really careful because saying things like, we are investing in sustainability, or we care about the environment, or simple ad campaigns trying to promote general pro-environmental behaviors can be seen as marketing ploys, which can actually harm a company's brand and, and turn people off. Ultimately, what we need to see more of are companies saying, here are the things we've actually done. And here is the direct impact that it has on CO2 emissions, as opposed to simply saying, here's how we've shifted the needle on awareness, or we've gotten more and more people to sort of support a given cause. And I think that the consumer mindset right now is one where they're looking to see, has any company actually done something that matters that can be proven? Because otherwise, trying to allow them to tell me I have to change my behavior could be seen as hypocritical or passing the buck. Who does this really well? I think a lot of companies are doing it really well right now. And, you know, we had the fortune to work with Hellman's, one of the Unilever companies on their food waste reduction initiative. And this was really a multi-team effort to try and create a real behavior change campaign that would help people manage how they consume and, and dispose of food in their homes. And this was something that was enormous amount of science and time uh, was spent on before it was rolled out, before any noise was made about this. And I think it's a really good example of, you know, investing in impact and not just on messaging. 
Got it. Let's go a bit deeper into some of the other projects that you've been working on. Why don't you share other examples of projects you've worked on that you feel most proud of? We talked briefly about Unilever. What else is there? We worked with the government here in Ontario on residential electricity consumption reduction, which is always a huge issue. Electricity is one of those resources that if we're privileged enough to live in the part of the world where we have consistent electricity, we can't reduce that to zero. It's really about managing the demand. And one of the most common levers that's pulled is price right? Traditional economic manipulation. If we increase the price of electricity, consumption should go down. And we worked with electricity companies here as well as the provincial regulators to test out pricing, but also non-pricing ways to change residential electricity consumption. One of the most interesting things we found is that in one of the conditions in our pilot, which ran for about two years, was that If you give people accurate information on their consumption, if you ask them to commit to reducing that and you give them very specific actionable suggestions on how they can do it that are personalized, you can get about a 1% reduction on electricity consumption during peak times of day. And that sounds paltry, but it's actually not because doubling the price of electricity has a zero impact on consumption. And of course, it's much more costly and angers people a lot more than simple feedback and communications. So this is a really great example of how behavioral science or behavioral economic lower cost interventions can sometimes outperform the more heavy handed economic approaches. Absolutely. I think those are the sorts of solutions which I love to see most. It's the classical approach to problem solving is how much money can I throw at something? How much resource can I throw at something? Actually, often the most optimal solution is one which is just a little cuter. And of course, when we think about these kinds of problems which you highlight, I think one of the great challenges we face is moving from sort of small, isolated experiments to real scale and impact at scale. And I think both stages are important and teach us different things. But how do we move through the gears so that we have the rigor and big, long lasting impact? Well, of course, the important thing about doing a small one-off experiments to start with is that you can have really close control over what you're manipulating and what you're measuring. And maybe the measurement piece is the most important because it's very easy for me to design an experiment where I can actually you know, measure the food waste that a household produces at a small scale. But if I was to scale that up to a population of hundreds of thousands or millions, I couldn't measure that. So I would need to know in some way that it already works. And so small scale pilot tests are really important for that reason. The other reason is that we can carefully manipulate what uh, treatments we're subjecting people to. So I can try one small thing with one group. I can slowly build on that and see what works and what doesn't. And that's really important, not just from a theoretical perspective, but we don't want to put something into the world that's more complex than it needs to be. And we don't want various parts of our intervention to work against each other. So that's a really important consideration before we take something and we sort of deploy it to the masses. Talking of experimentation, your role, your former title actually at BE Works, you were head of experimentation, which has a certain Harry Potter-like intrigue <laughs> about it. I mean, what did that responsibility entail? I'm fascinated by what makes good experimental design and, and the opposite. What are the, what are the sort of mistakes that practitioners make when designing experiments? Yeah, well, one of the things that we pride ourselves on is is not just delivering ideas or solutions, but validating those and finding out if they work or not and by how much. And so experimentation is a big part of our, you know, our consulting offering. And what makes for a good experiment, I suppose, is one that the results can translate to the actual business context or to the actual societal context as closely as possible. One of the ways that I think practitioners often fall a little bit short about on this is that we'll design laboratory experiments or online 
experiments where the measures we're looking at are, are a little bit softer, like intentions. And, and when we're talking about sustainability, this is very common. We can look at all of the individual difference characteristics and the effect of various messaging interventions on someone's intention to behave in a certain way. Everything from reusable coffee mugs to buying a, an electric vehicle. And I think we often make the mistake of making too big of a leap that because something it was effective in changing the intentions of a test population, that it will then change the behavior of a real population. And I think that's a bit dangerous, especially when we're trying to run experiments to inform policy or very large and well-funded behavior change campaigns run by private organizations. So let's make this personal. And I think the retrospective is always valuable. So what mistakes have you made? And you know, what, what have you learned? And how have you adapted your thinking and your approach? Have you built your experience? Well, I'm sure I've also been guilty of using some of these softer metrics. And I think we've been trying to move towards more sort of ecological validity in what we can do. And I think it's better to have a slightly messier, but more realistic pilot experiment as opposed to a perfectly tightly controlled one that will have limited generalizability, because there's no point in doing this if your intention is to put something out into the world that will have real impact. And when it comes to sustainable lifestyle choices and sustainable behavior change, I think that in general, there's been an over-reliance on communications as the medium for behavior change. I understand why that's the case because it's available and it's an easy lever to pull. However, it's a fairly weak one. And when you simply use messaging to try and, and change behavior and habits, you're also introducing another behavioral challenge, right? Which is how do you get eyeballs and attention on that messaging, whether it's an ad campaign or it's an email or a text message or however we go about doing that. So I think that one of the things we've learned is try and go a little bit more holistic in how we try and change behavior. Is there a way to actually change choice sets and default and the choice architecture in which these behaviors are being made? And it's a little bit more difficult. It doesn't always lend itself well to a very simple randomized control trial, but I think it's the way we have to go if we want to realize bigger impact. So here's a question I ask to all my guests in this practitioner series. Where is the next behavioral science frontier for sustainability? What are the thorny issues that you're really excited to tackle next? Well, for me personally, I think if you look at what the UN has come out with as saying, here are the consumer and citizen behaviors that need to shift, they basically fall into three broad categories, diet, transportation, and energy consumption. And a lot of work has been done on energy consumption. And a lot of work and attention is being spent on transportation. And I think much less is being spent on how we eat and what we eat. Um, there's a little bit of awareness about it, depending on where you live. But I think that it will be a big challenge. How do we shift the way that people consume food to be more sustainable? Because it is a huge contributor to CO2. And there are all kinds of social and cultural norms around how we eat and what we eat. A lot of self-concept and self-identity that plays into that. And of course, the hardest thing to overcome in behavior change is the strength of a pre-existing habit. And how we eat, you know, three or four times a day might be the strongest habit that we have. But I think it's something that we have to tackle. And I don't believe that we will be able to reach our demand side carbon reduction targets if we leave out that whole third of what the UN intergovernmental panel is saying we need to focus on to offset global warming. Well, let's just take food waste and associated environmental impacts. What are you seeing at this cutting edge in terms of starting to solve this problem or small steps? Yeah, there's a lot of attention on food waste right now. And I think 
you know, in some of these behavior change areas, the, the small first step is often closing the information gap. Now, that alone will not change behavior. But in the case of something like food waste, most people don't see anything wrong with it. It's just, you know, it's food. It will decompose. It will return to the earth. It's not a problem. It's not the same as throwing a plastic bottle onto the road. But throwing food into landfill is actually hugely problematic. And I think a starting point, at least in terms of that behavior, is making people aware of that, adding a little bit of that motivation, and then, of course, tackling that value action gap that will still exist to actually shift behavior. And I think one of the things that seems to be working a little bit is, you know, tapping into people's self-concept a little bit, whether it's as a good provider for your family, whether it's someone who's pro-environmental, whatever that self-concept is, that can be leveraged to change how people consume something like, like food and, and what they buy and what they eat. So let's circle back to our personal and corporate responsibility and following on more baby steps. What are baby steps or call it easy wins that A, organizations might take to behave more responsibly and indeed to encourage their customers to do? Or indeed, as individuals, where can we take the initiative without too much effort? Well, I think when it comes to companies, some of the small things that can be done are really just around how we present the sustainable options. So a lot of money and time has been spent, and rightly so, by companies at least making it possible for consumers to choose between a more or less sustainable alternative. But by and large, they're still specialty. They make up a small proportion of products and services being offered, and they're not at the forefront. And I think just changing a little bit the choice presentation, the way we set up online shopping websites and stores to really push the environmentally sustainable options is a very easy, small step that, that companies can make. Maybe not so small of a step is cost parity. I think that sustainable is still being used as a value proposition that comes with a green premium in terms of price. It's being used to make more money off of consumers largely as opposed to getting them to live more sustainably. And I think we need to get rid of that. Otherwise, we're just disincentivizing sustainable behavior change on many fronts. Which products suffer from green premium most illustratively? Well, it's coming down, but I, you know, solar panels, electric vehicles, the big ticket items have been substantially more expensive than their environmentally destructive alternatives. You go to the grocery store, there's still a premium on our organic foods, right? And even meat alternatives that we see now are still very highly priced relative to the high carbon meat default. And do you see that predominantly as a branding sort of value prop? premium or is there some additional hidden sort of intrinsic value that we're paying for? I don't know that there's intrinsic value to the consumer, but certainly there's a cost associated with those technologies. They're still relatively recent and they do cost more to make those. And I think that over time we can hit cost parity with electric vehicles and other types of sustainable lifestyle choices that people can make. It's not going to solve the problem. Just making it the same price isn't going to all of a sudden shift everyone over. We still will have this value action gap and pre-existing habits that need to be overcome, but it's an important step nonetheless. Right. Last question. How do you and your family adhere to your own sustainability principles, or are you as susceptible as the rest of us to slipping into bad habits? Well, I'm definitely as susceptible as the rest of us. But personally, in my house, we're all vegetarian. We, you know, we don't eat any high carbon meats or anything like that. And 
of course, having spent a, a year or two working on food waste reduction campaigns, we pay a lot of attention to that and have tried to implement some of those behavior change tactics in our own house to make food out of what we have on hand that otherwise might find its way into the garbage as opposed to hopping out to the store for a bunch of specialty ingredients to, to make meals every night. So yeah, mostly around food if I come to think of it. Yeah, I bet being close to the sector makes you think very differently about it all. With that, Dave, let me thank you so much for joining me today and chewing over one of the more complex fields of behavior science, because I think while the pendulum of sort of short-term and long-term benefits of behavioral change swings for other topics too, like personal finance or healthcare, encouraging us to behave sustainably plays to a more subtle set of emotions. As we discussed, it's harder to define personal gain because this is typically about collective behavior, collective endeavor, and only with real creativity can we demonstrate concrete, tangible, and immediate benefits. So, you know, for better or worse, we love immediate gratification versus thinking about our future. So there is plenty of food for thought. So thank you so much, Dave. My pleasure. Next week on the show, it's our wrap of this practitioner series to the BS Galaxy. And joining me are Nate Barr and Shannon O'Malley from BE Works. We are going to talk about their highlights from the series, what they've learned, what surprised them, and where next for behavioral science. And I might share one or two of my highlights as well over the course of the last few months. So please join me for that as we link arms, sing old Lang Syne, and draw a celebratory close to what has been a wonderful collaboration. And lastly, as always, if you enjoy these podcasts, please do leave me a five-star review on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Your support is what makes us tick. Thank you, and see you next time.